Welcome to the Locked Room. Stories from the Golden Age of Mystery and Crime Fiction. I'm Mardell, reading a tale of condiments and confounding clues. The Two Bottles of Relish by Lord Dunsany. Smithers is my name. I'm what you might call a small man, and in a small way of business. I travel for num-numo, a relish for meats and savouries. The world-famous relish, I ought to say. It's really quite good, no deleterious acids in it, and does not affect the heart, so it is quite easy to push. I wouldn't have got the job if it weren't, but I hope some day to get something that's harder to push— as, of course, the harder they are to push, the better the pay. At present, I can just make my way with nothing at all over, but then I live in a very expensive flat. Well, it happened like this, and that brings me to my story, and it isn't the story you'd expect from a small man like me, yet there's nobody else to tell it. Those that know anything of it besides me are all for hushing it up. Well, I was looking for a room to live in in London when first I got my job. It had to be in London to be central. And I went to a block of buildings, very gloomy they looked, and saw the man that ran them and asked him for what I wanted. Flats, they called them, just a bedroom and a sort of cupboard. Well, he was showing a man round at the time who was a gent, and back more than that, so he didn't take much notice of me. The man that ran all those flats, didn't I mean, so I just ran behind for a bit, seeing all sorts of rooms, and waiting till I could be shown my class of thing. We came to a very nice flat, a sitting room, bedroom, and bathroom, and a sort of little place that they called a hall. And that's how I came to know Lindley. He was the bloke that was being shown round. But expensive, he said and the man that ran the flats turned away to the window and picked his teeth. It's funny how much you can show by a simple thing like. What he meant to say was that he'd hundreds of flats like that and thousands of people looking for them, and he didn't care who had them or whether they all went on looking. There was no mistaking him somehow, and yet he never said a word, only looked away out of the window and picked his teeth. And I ventured... "'to speak to Mr. Lindley then, and I said, "'How about it, sir, if I paid half and shared it? "'I wouldn't be in the way, and I'm out all day, "'and whatever you said would go, and really, "'I wouldn't be no more in your way than a cat. "'But you may be surprised at my doing it, "'and you'll be much more surprised at him accepting it, "'at least you would if you knew me, "'just a small man and a small way of business.' And yet I could see at once that he was taking to me more than he was taking to the man at the window. But there's only one bedroom, he said. I could make up my bed easy in that little room there, I said. The hall, said the man looking round from the window without taking his toothpick out. And I'd have the bed out of the way and hid in the cupboard by any hour you like, I said. He looked thoughtful. And the other man looked out over London, and in the end, do you know, he accepted. Friend of yours, said the flat man. Yes, 
answered Mr. Lindley. It was really very nice of him. I'll tell you why I did it. Able to afford it? Of course not. But I heard him tell the flat man that he had just come down from Oxford and wanted to live for a few months in London. It turned out he wanted just to be comfortable and do nothing for a bit, while he looked things over and chose a job, or probably just as long as he could afford it. Well, I said to myself, what's the Oxford manor worth in business, especially a business like mine? <laughs> Simply everything you've got. If I picked up only a quarter of it from this Mr. Lindley, I'd be able to double my sales, and that would soon mean I'd be giving something a lot harder to push, with perhaps treble the pay. Worth it every time, and you can make a quarter of an education go twice as far again if you're careful with it. I mean, you don't have to quote the whole of the Inferno to show that you've read Milton. Uh, half a line may do it. Well, about that story I have to tell, and you mightn't think that a little man like me could make you shudder. Well, I soon forgot about the Oxford Manor when we settled down in our flat. I forgot it in the sheer wonder of the man himself. He had a mind like an acrobat's body, like a bird's body. It didn't want education. You didn't notice whether he was educated or not. Ideas were always leaping up in him, things you'd never have thought of, and not only that, but if any ideas were about, he'd sort of catch them. Time and again I found him knowing just what I was going to say. Not thought reading but what they call intuition. I used to try to learn a bit about chess, just to take my thoughts off num-numo in the evening when I'd done with it. But problems I never could do. Yet he'd come along and glance at my problem and say, you probably move that piece first. And I'd say, but where? And he'd say, oh, one of those three squares. And I'd say, but it will be taken on all of them. And the piece a queen all the time, mind you. And he'd say, yes, yeah, so it's doing no good there. You're probably meant to lose it. And do you know? He'd be right. You see, he'd been following out what the other man had been thinking. That's what he'd been doing. Well, one day there was that ghastly murder at Unge. I don't know if you remember it, but Steger had gone down to live with a girl in a bungalow on the North Downs. That was the first we had heard of him. The girl had two hundred pounds, and he got every penny of it, and she utterly disappeared, and Scotland Yard couldn't find her. Well, I'd happened to read that Steger had bought two bottles of Num Numo, for the other Thorpe police had found out everything about him, except what he did with the girl. And that, of course, attracted my attention, or I should never have thought again about the case, or said a word of it to Lindley. Num Numo was always on my mind, as I always spent every day pushing it, and that kept me from forgetting the other thing, and so one day I said to Lindley, I wonder, with all that knack you have for seeing through a chess problem and thinking of one thing and another, that you don't have a go with that other Thorpe mystery. It's a problem as much as chess. I said, There's not the mystery in ten murders that there is in one game of chess, he answered. It's beaten Scotland Yard, I said. Has it? he asked. 
Knock them in, wise, I said. I shouldn't have done that, he said. And almost immediately afterward, he said, What are the facts? We were both sitting at supper, and I told him the facts as I had them straight from the papers. She was a pretty blonde. She was small. She was called Nancy Elf. She had two hundred pounds. They lived at the bungalow for five days. After that, he stayed there for another fortnight, but nobody ever saw her alive again. Steger said that she had gone to South America, but later said he had never said South America, but South Africa. None of her money remained in the bank where she had kept it, and Steger was shown to have come by at least a hundred and fifty pounds just at that time. Then Steger turned out to be a vegetarian, getting all his food from the greengrocer, and that made the constable in the village of Unge suspicious of him. For a vegetarian was something new to the constable. He watched Steger after that, and it's well he did, for there was nothing that Scotland Yard asked him that he couldn't tell them about him, except, of course, that one thing. And he told the police at Otherthorpe, five or six miles away, and they came and took a hand at it, too. They were able to say, for one thing, that he never went outside the bungalow and its tidy garden ever since she disappeared. You see, the more they watched him, the more suspicious they got, as you naturally do if you're watching a man, so that very soon they were watching every move he made. But if it hadn't been for his being a vegetarian, they'd never have started to suspect him, and there wouldn't have been enough evidence even for Lindley. Not that they found out anything much against him, except that hundred and fifty pounds dropping in from nowhere. And it was Scotland Yard that found that, not the police of Otherthorpe. No, what the constable of Unge found out was about the larch trees, and that beat Scotland Yard utterly, and beat Lindley up to the very last, and of course it beat me. There were ten larch trees in the bit of a garden, and he'd made some sort of an arrangement with the landlord Steger had before he took the bungalow by which he could do what he liked with the larch trees. And then, from about the time that little Nancy Elf must have died, he cut every one of them down. Three times a day he went at it for nearly a week, and when they were all down he cut them up all into logs no more than two foot long, and laid them all in neat heaps. You never saw such work. And what for? To give an excuse for the axe, was one theory. But the excuse was bigger than the axe. It took him a fortnight hard work every day, and he could have killed a little thing like Nancy Elth without an axe, and cut her up too. Another theory was that he wanted firewood to make away with the body. But he never used it. He left it all standing there in those neat stacks. It fairly beat everybody. Well, those are the facts, I told Lindley. Oh, yes, and he bought a big butcher's knife. Funny thing they all do. And yet it isn't so funny after all. If you've got to cut a woman up, you've got to cut her up, and you can't do that without a knife. Then there were some negative facts. He had not burned her only had a fire in the small stove now and then, and only used it for cooking. They got on to that pretty smartly, the Unge constable did, and the men that were lending him a hand from Motherthorpe. 
There were some little woody places lying around. Shaws, they call them in that part of the country. The country people do. And they could climb a tree handy and unobserved and get a sniff at the smoke in almost any direction it might be blowing. And they did that now and then. And there was no smell of flesh burning, just ordinary cooking. Pretty smart of the other Thorpe police, that was, though of course it did not help to hang Steger. Then later on, the Scotland Yard men went down and got another fact. Negative, but narrowing things down all the while. And that was that the chalk under the bungalow and under the little garden had none of it been disturbed. And he'd never been outside it since Nancy disappeared. Oh, yes, and he had a big file besides the knife. But there was no sign of any ground bones found on the file or any blood on the knife. He'd washed them, of course. I told all that to Lindley. Now, I ought to warn you before I go any further. I am a small man myself, and you probably don't expect anything horrible from me. But I ought to warn you this man was a murderer. Or at any rate, somebody was. The woman had been made away with, a nice pretty little girl, too. And the man that had done that wasn't necessarily going to stop at things you might think he'd stop at. With a mind to do a thing like that, and with the long, thin shadow of the rope to drive him further, you can't say what he'll stop at. Murder tales seem nice things sometimes, for a lady to sit and read all by herself by the fire. But murder isn't a nice thing, and when a murderer's desperate and trying to hide his tracks, he isn't even as nice as he was before. I'll ask you to bear that in mind. Well, I've warned you. So, I says to Lindley, and what do you make of it? Drains, said Lindley. No, I says, you're wrong there. Scotland Yard has been into that, and the other Thorpe people before them. They've had a look in the drains, such as they are. Little thing running into a cesspool beyond the garden. Nothing's gone down it. Nothing that oughtn't to have, I mean. He made one or two other suggestions, but Scotland Yard had been before him in every case. Now that's really the crab of my story, if you'll excuse the expression. You want a man who sets out to be a detective to take his magnifying glass and go down to the spot to go to the spot before everything and then to measure the footmarks and pick up the clues and find the knife that the police have overlooked. But Lindley never even went near the place, and he hadn't got a magnifying glass, not as I ever saw, and Scotland Yard were before him every time. In fact, they had more clues than anybody could make head or tail of, Every kind of clue to show that he'd murdered the poor little girl. Every kind of clue to show that he hadn't disposed of the body. And yet, the body wasn't there. It wasn't in South America either, and not much more likely in South Africa. And all the time, mind you, that enormous bunch of chopped larchwood. A clue that was staring everyone in the face and leading nowhere. No, we didn't seem to want any more clues, and Lindley never went near the place. The trouble was to deal with the clues we'd got. I was completely mystified. So was Scotland Yard, and Lindley seemed to be getting no forwarder. And all the while the mystery was hanging on me, 
I mean, if it were not for the trifle I chanced to remember, and if it were not for one chance word I said to Lindley, that mystery would have gone the way of all the other mysteries that men have made nothing of, a darkness, a little patch of night in history. Well, the fact was Lindley didn't take much interest in it at first, but I was so absolutely sure that he could do it that I kept him to the idea. You can do chess problems, I said. That's ten times harder, he said, sticking to his point. Well, then why don't you do this? I said. Then go and take a look at the board for me, said Lindley. That was his way of talking. We'd been a fortnight together, and I knew it by now. He meant to go down to the bungalow at Ange. I know you'll say, why didn't he go himself? But the plain truth of it is that if he'd been tearing about the countryside, he'd never have been thinking. Whereas sitting there in his chair by the fire in our flat, there was no limit to the ground he could cover, if you follow my meaning. So down I went by train next day and got out of Dunge Station, and there were the North Downs rising up before me somehow like music. It's up there, isn't it? I said to the porter. That's right, he said. Up there by the lane. Mind to turn to your right when you get to the old yew tree. A very big tree. You can't mistake it. And then... And he told me the way so that I couldn't go wrong. I found them all like that. Very nice and helpful. You see, it was Unge's day at last. Everyone had heard of Unge now. You could have got a letter there any time just then without putting the county or post town. And this was what Unge had to show. I dare say if you tried to find Unge now. Well, anyway, they were making hay while the sun shone. Well, there the hill was, going up into the sunlight, going up like a song. You don't want to hear about the spring and all the May rioting and the color that came down over everything later on in the day and all those birds, but I thought, what a nice place to bring a girl to. And then, when I thought, that he'd killed her there. Well, I'm only a small man, as I said, but when I thought of her on that hill with all the birds singing, I said to myself, wouldn't it be odd if it turned out to be me, after all, that got that man killed if he did murder her? So I soon found my way up to the bungalow and began prying about, looking over the hedge into the garden. And I didn't find much, and I found nothing at all that the police hadn't found already. But there were those heaps of larch logs staring me in the face and looking very queer. I did a lot of thinking, leaning against the hedge, breathing the smell of the may, looking over the top of it at the larch logs and the neat little bungalow on the other side of the garden. Lots of theories I thought of till I came to the best thought of all. And that was that if I left the thinking to Lindley, with his Oxford and Cambridge education, and only brought him the facts as he had told me, I should be doing more good in my way than if I tried to do any big thinking. I forgot to tell you that I had gone to Scotland Yard in the morning. Well, there really wasn't much to tell, what they asked me was what I wanted, and not having an answer exactly ready, I didn't find out very much from them, but it was quite different at Unge. Everyone was most obliging, 
It was their day there, as I said. The constable let me go indoors so long as I didn't touch anything, and he gave me a look at the garden from the inside. And I saw the stumps of the ten larch trees, and I noticed one thing that Lindley said was very observant of me. And not that it turned out to be any use, but anyway, I was doing my best. I noticed that the stumps had all been chopped anyhow. And from that I thought that the man that did it didn't know much about chopping. The constable said that was a deduction. So then I said that the axe was blunt when he used it. And that certainly made the constable think, though he didn't actually say I was right this time. Did I tell you that Steger never went outdoors except to the little garden to chop wood? Ever since Nancy disappeared, I think I did. Well, it was perfectly true. They'd watched him night and day, one or another of them, and the unconstable told me that himself. Well, that limited things a good deal. The only thing I didn't like about it was that I felt Lindley ought to have found all that out instead of ordinary policemen, and I felt that he could have, too. There'd have been romance in a story like that, and they'd never have done it if the news hadn't gone round that the man was a vegetarian and only dealt at the greengrocers, like as not even that was only started out of pique by the butcher. It's queer what little things may trip a man up. Best to keep straight is my motto. But perhaps I'm straying a bit away from my story. I should like to do that forever. Forget that it ever was. But I can't. Well, I picked up all sorts of information. Clues, I suppose, I should call it in a story like this, though they none of them seem to lead anywhere. For instance, I found out everything he ever bought at the village. I could even tell you the kind of salt he bought. Quite plain, with no phosphates in it that they sometimes put in to make it tidy. And then he got ice from the fishmongers and plenty of vegetables, as I said, from the greengrocer, Mergen and Sons, and I had a bit of a talk over it all with the constable. Slugger, he said his name was, and I wondered why he hadn't come in and searched the place as soon as the girl was missing. Well, you can't do that, he said, and besides, we didn't suspect it once, not about the girl, that is. We only suspected there was something wrong with him, on account of him being a vegetarian. He stayed a good fortnight after the last that was seen of her. Then we slipped in like a knife, but you see, no one had been inquiring about her. There was no warrant out. And what did you find? I asked Slugger when you went in. Just a big file, he said, and the knife and the axe that he must have got to chop her up with. But he got the axe to chop trees with, I said. Well, yes, he said, but rather grudgingly. And what did he chop them for? I asked. Well, of course. My superiors has theories about that, he said, that they mightn't tell to everybody. You see, it was those logs that were beating them. But did he cut her up at all? I asked. Well, he said she was going to South America, he answered, which was really very fair-minded of him. I don't remember now how much else that he told me. Steger left the plates and dishes all washed up and very neat, he said. Well, 
I brought all this back to Lindley, going up by the train that started just about sunset. I'd like to tell you about the late spring evening, so calm over that grim bungalow, closing in with a glory all around it as though it were blessing it. But you'll want to hear of the murder. Well, I told Lindley everything, though much of it didn't seem to me to be worth the telling. The trouble was that the moment I began to leave anything out, he'd know it and make me drag it in. You can't tell. What may be vital, he'd say. A tin tack swept away by a housemaid might hang a man. All very well, but be consistent, even if you are educated at Eton and Harrow. And whenever I mention Num Numo, which after all was the beginning of the whole story, because he wouldn't have heard of it if it hadn't been for me, and my noticing that Steger had bought two bottles of it. Well, then he said that things like that were trivial, and we should keep to the main issues. I naturally talked a bit about Num Numo, because only that day I had pushed close on fifty bottles of it in Unge. The murder certainly stimulates people's minds and Steger's two bottles gave me an opportunity that only a fool could have failed to make something of. But, of course, all that was nothing at all to Lindley. You can't see a man's thoughts, and you can't look into his mind, so that all the most exciting things in the world can never be told of. But what I think happened all that evening with Lindley— while I talked to him before supper and all through supper and sitting smoking afterwards in front of our fire was that his thoughts were stuck at a barrier there was no getting over. And the barrier wasn't the difficulty of finding ways and means by which Steger might have made away with the body, but the impossibility of finding why he chopped those masses of wood every day for a fortnight and paid, as I'd just found out, Twenty-five pounds to his landlord to be allowed to do it. That's what was beating Lindley. As for the ways by which Steger might have hidden the body, it seemed to me that every way was blocked by the police. If you said he buried it, they said the chalk was undisturbed. If you said he carried it away, they said he never left the place. If you said he burned it, they said no smell of burning was ever noticed when the smoke blew low and when it didn't, they climbed trees after it. I'd taken to Lindley wonderfully, and I didn't have to be educated to see there was something big in a mind like his. And I thought that he could have done it. When I saw the police getting in before him like that, and no way that I could see of getting past them, I felt real sorry. Did anyone come to the house? He asked me once or twice. Did anyone take anything away from it? but we couldn't account for it that way. Then perhaps I made some suggestion that was no good, or perhaps I started talking of num-numo again, and he interrupted me rather sharply. But what would you do, Smithers? He said. What would you do yourself? If I had murdered poor Nancy Elf, I asked. Yes, he said. I can't ever imagine doing such a thing, I told him. He sighed at that as though it were something against me. I suppose I should never be a detective, I said, and he just shook his head. Then he looked broodingly into the fire for what seemed an hour, and then he shook his head again. We both went to bed after that. I shall remember the next day, all my life, 
I was till evening, as usual, pushing num-numo, and we sat down to supper about nine. You couldn't get things cooked at those flats, so of course we had it cold, and Lindley began with a salad. I can see it now, every bit of it. Well, I was still a bit full of what I'd done in Unge, pushing num-numo. Only a fool, I know, would have been unable to push it there, but still, I had pushed it, and about fifty bottles, forty-eight to be exact, or something in a small village, whatever the circumstances. So I was talking about it a bit, and then all of a sudden, I realized that num-numo was nothing to Lindley, and I pulled myself up with a jerk. It really was very kind of him. Do you know what he did? He must have known at once why I stopped talking, and he just stretched out a hand and said, Would you give me a little of your num-numo for my salad? I was so touched. I nearly gave it him. But, of course, you don't take num-numo with salad, only for meats and savories, so that's on the bottle. So I just said to him, only for meats and savories, though I don't know what savories are. Ever had any? I never saw a man's face go like that before. He seemed still for a whole minute, and nothing speaking about him but that expression, like a man that's seen a ghost when is tempted to write. But it wasn't really at all. I'll tell you what he looked like, like a man that's seen something that no one has ever looked at before, something he thought couldn't be. And then he said in a voice that was all quite changed, more low and gentle and quiet, it seemed. No good for vegetables, eh? Not a bit, I said, and at that he gave a kind of sob in his throat. I hadn't thought he could feel things like that. Of course, I didn't know what it was all about, but whatever it was, I thought all that sort of thing would have been knocked out of him at Eton and Harrow, an educated man like that. There were no tears in his eyes, but he was feeling something horribly. And then he began to speak with big spaces between his words, saying, A man might make a mistake, perhaps, and use num-num-o with vegetables. Not twice, I said. What else could I say? And he repeated that after me, as though I had told the end of the world, adding an awful emphasis to my words, till they seemed all clammy with some frightful significance, and shaking his head as he said it. Then he was quite silent. What is it? I asked. Smithers, he said. Yes, I said. Smithers, said he, and I said, well, look here, Smithers, he said. You must phone down to the grocer at Unge and fight out from him this. Yes, I said, whether Steger bought those two bottles, as I expect he did, on the same day and not a few days apart. He couldn't have done that. I waited to see if any more was coming, and then I ran out and did what I was told, it took me some time being after nine o'clock, and only then with the help of the police. About six days apart, they said, and so I came back and told Lindley. He looked up at me so hopefully when I came in. But I saw that it was the wrong answer. 
by his eyes. You can't take things to heart like that without being ill, and when he didn't speak, I said, What you want is a good brandy and go to bed early. And he said, No, I must see someone from Scotland Yard. Phone round to them. Say here at once. But I said, I can't get an inspector from Scotland Yard to call on us at this hour. His eyes were all lit up. He was all there all right. Then tell them, he said, that they'll never find Nancy Ill. Tell one of them to come here, and I'll tell him why. And he added, I think only for me. They must watch Steger till one day they get him over something else. And do you know he came? Inspector Olton, he came himself. While we were waiting, I tried to talk to Lindley, partly curiosity, I admit, but I didn't want to leave him to those thoughts of his brooding away by the fire. I tried to ask him what it was all about, but he wouldn't tell me. Murder is horrible, is all he would say, and as a man covers his tracks up, it only gets worse. He wouldn't tell me. There are tales, he said, that one never wants to hear. Oh, that's true enough. I wish I'd never heard this one. I never did, actually, but I guessed it. From Lindley's last words to Inspector Olton, the only ones that I overheard. And perhaps this is the point at which to stop reading my story so that you don't guess it too, even if you think you want murder stories, for... Don't you rather want a murder story with a bit of a romantic twist and not a story about real foul murder? Well, just as you like. In came Inspector Olton, and Lindley shook hands in silence and pointed the way to his bedroom, and they went in there and talked in low voices, and I never heard a word. A fairly hearty-looking man was the inspector when they went into that room. They walked through our sitting room in silence when they came out, and together they went into the hall. And there I heard the only words they said to each other. It was the inspector that first broke that silence. But why, he said, did he cut down the trees? Solely, said Lindley, in order to get an appetite. Please join me next time for another macabre mystery here on the locked room. Until then, beware of footsteps in the dark.